Hi, Fresh Ed listeners, it's Will. Before today's show, I wanted to read the latest review of Fresh Ed on iTunes. Julian Dierkes from the University of British Columbia writes, quote, Fresh Ed is definitely my favorite academic podcast after I've been listening to a variety of podcasts for personal and professional purposes for two years now. Will Brem consistently gets guests to talk about their specialty and research in an understandable way. Great guests shine through smart questions. 30 minutes is a good length, and topics vary interestingly without losing focus on comparative education, and not just from a U.S. perspective. Highly recommended for education scholars, comparativists generally, and the dedicated public. Thanks, Julian. Those were very kind words indeed. Now, I wanted to ask all listeners for a favor. Could you please write a review of Fresh Ed on iTunes? How do you listen to the show? What makes it valuable in your opinion? Can it be improved? Reviews are the best way to show the podcast's value to new listeners and to keep me engaged with you. Thanks a million. And now on with the show. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Can education be used to create peace? Can it help mend long-standing issues in conflict-afflicted regions? These questions don't have easy answers, but we'll jump into the debates feet first. My guests today, Mika Lopez-Cardozo and Ritesh Shah, have been studying education, social transformations, and peace building for the past decade and have worked and written together since 2011. They find that education has the capacity for both positive and negative outcomes. Education can certainly help resolve conflict by creating community and giving voice to underrepresented groups in society. However, education can also be used as a tool by ruling elites, as a way to maintain their grip on power, which may sow further division in society. Think of it this way. Imagine if a ruling party in a country decides to censor content from history textbooks that may question its power. Would that really create the conditions under which peace is possible? Or imagine if minority groups are purposely excluded from school-based decisions. How can peace be sustainable if the structures of education systematically exclude certain people? These issues are not strange or reserved for quote-unquote poor or developing countries. In fact, the politics of education happens in every country. With me to talk about peace building and education are Mika Lopez-Cardozo and Ritesh Shah. Mika is Assistant Professor in International Development Studies at the Institute of Social Science Research at the University of Amsterdam. And Ritesh is a Senior Lecturer of Comparative and International Education at the University of Auckland. Mika Lopez-Cardozo and Ritesh Shah, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. Thanks for organizing this. And thanks to you, Will. So you have been working on education in post-conflict settings. What is the relationship between education and post-conflict settings? Thanks for that question, Will. Um, it's, it's an interesting way to start our conversation. The relationship between education and post-conflict settings is, I think, um, often underestimated. 
And often education is, um, is not necessarily seen as a priority either in peace building approaches or um, in, uh, even in education reform, it's, it's not necessarily seen as, uh, as a priority to look at the relationship with conflict. Now, in the work that we do, um, we try to overcome this lack of awareness. We actually try to um, bridge these two points of focus. So to actually look at the role, both positive and negative, that education can play um, in post-conflict areas and in relation to the building of peace and sustainable peace. So what sort of positive role would education play in building sustainable peace? Um, education could play a positive role um, in several ways. Um, it could support um, kind of at different levels. It could support individuals uh, in terms of finding a sense of normalcy in, in situations of emergency and crisis. Um, education can provide structure, uh, even a sense of hope um, for a better future. Um, education can potentially bring communities together. Um, it can potentially also support the dealing with the past, dealing with grievances um, and even with, with trauma. Um, and I use the word potential quite a few times because education can unfortunately um, also do some harm in some cases. So how can education do harm? Um, well, I think there's, there's actually quite a, a few different ways that education could do harm. Um, there's, there's actually, um, so if we were to just take the, the point of access, which has been the focus of, say, the development agenda over the last 20 years, um, if we think about access, we could think about the fact that sometimes um, who has access to, to schooling can be shaped by uh, who's in power and who people in power want to be going to schooling and who they don't want to be going to schooling. Um, so a, a really good example of that is in Rwanda, where um, over time the division between the um, Tutsis and the Hutus um, have led basically to um, different processes of marginalization, first during colonization and then after independence. And in, and, and in both periods, one of the two groups was kind of marginalized in terms of accessing education. And there were, that would have been through quite um, strict uh, discrimination practices such as racial quotas um, or, or through kind of um, more subvert, uh, I guess, less direct uh, forms of uh, lack of access, such as language of instruction. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a great quote from um, one scholar, Degu, who says, those who control political and economic power tend to allocate priority of educational opportunities first and foremost uh, to their own children, uh, and then to those who are next in line in maintaining the power holder's position of interest. And, and so we need to remember that education is political and education has power, and, and it can oftentimes be used to reproduce those structures of power. Um, there's also um, this question of relevance, and uh, there can be a sense that when education 
uh, is not seen to be relevant, or when it's purposely made to not be relevant, it can also trigger uh, conflict. Uh, and that can happen through, as I've already talked about, things like the language of instruction. And there are many parts of the world where this has been the case. Uh, one of the examples that we've looked at is, um, or actually Mika's looked at in more detail, is Sri Lanka, um, where, for example, uh, the Sinhalese-speaking uh, majority basically um, were the ones in control of the system, but also um, because there was a sense of alienation, you ended up with a, a, a two-tiered two system. So you had the Sinhalese language schools, which were for the majority, and then the Tamil schools. Um, of course, they weren't resourced the same. They were, they were kind of segregated and separated. So when we talk about ideas of social cohesion across a nation, uh, it can actually cause those, or reproduce those divisions. And then I guess the last um, area is in terms of whose voices are represented in schooling and um, or in schooling decision-making. And there's been long-standing debates around whether centralization or decentralization is, is a good thing. Um, but I think those questions are particularly important in context of conflict because research has actually shown both ways that in some contexts, centralization um, is it can lead to grievances when communities feel that um, they don't actually have a say in what's happening and that it's being served by vested interests rather than kind of the broader national um, national whole and can it can erode trust with the nation. On the other hand, decentralization can also breed conflict if you lead, have tensions within communities. It can lead to reproductions of power structures at the community level and in fact um, divide communities further. So, so it's not that there's one solution or the other, but th these are just some examples of how those things play out. So it seems like you're talking a little bit about how education can cause conflict and through the education system, conflict can emerge. And this seems to happen, I would, I would imagine, in every education system, it's political. It's not just in post-conflict settings. But there's another issue that you're talking about, about post-conflict settings and the role of education for creating peace. Yeah, so this actually has been um, documented and conceptualized by um, Bush and Saltarelli in one of the um, first kind of very well-read pieces from 2000s. And they termed these kind of two sides of education, the positive and negative faces of education in conflict. So where I just provided a few examples of the positive face of education where it can kind of support this um, social cohesion, bringing communities together. It can support a sense of dealing with the past um, and also the rebuilding of a society, which would all be examples of the positive um, face of education. There's also the other side, which is the negative face of education. And Ritesh just provided a few of those examples and often what we see happening is that those two faces um, are there at the same time and many education systems um, would have features of both and of course what we're interested in with the research that we're doing is to uncover um, the, the structural conditions um, of how this negative face is often reproduced and how this can be challenged and how this can be transformed so that the positive face of education um, 
gets more space and that this potential is, is um, being used. It's interesting to see that in the case of Sri Lanka to give um, for the similar case also a positive example is that um, where the formal education system is very segregated, as Ritesh mentioned, um, and there is often a single story being represented, for instance, in the curricula, um, the history, the teaching of history. Um, on the positive side, we also see that from a grassroots level, um, there are many often youth-led non-formal um, teaching settings, um, such as uh, forum theater, where different um, group, groups of youth uh, and different students come together with various um, ethnic backgrounds, various linguistic backgrounds to discuss these issues of segregation, of discrimination, um, of misunderstandings. So this is in a way also a learning space um, that is sometimes directly connected to schools as an extracurricular program. And sometimes this happens outside of schools, but still provides kind of a non-formal learning space where you do see um, this kind of bridging and social cohesive action taking place. If I could just add something, um, the other thing I just wanted to say um, is that I think we also want to stress that there is actually a difference uh, that we would argue between I guess just restoring education and considering the kind of transformative potential of education and, and, and I think that's in a sense the differentiation that we also want to make. So when, we, when we're talking about peace building we're not talking about just returning education to the way it existed before. Um, and unfortunately that has been uh, the dominant approach. The dominant approach is build back schools, build, put teachers back in classrooms, get books and furniture, but don't think about what the education system was doing before the conflict, or don't consider the fact that there are structures, as Mika talked about, that might be inadvertently um, cre recreating the tensions that, that fuel the conflict. So how, would, how does that happen? How, how do you get I guess it would be policymakers or international development agencies. How, how do you get them to begin thinking of transformative education in post-conflict societies when it comes to education, rather than just rebuilding education as it was, getting the classrooms up and the, the desks in place? How, like, how does it actually work? Well, I think what is important here is to look at the difference or actually our understanding of what peace and peace building means. So I've just given an example of the positive and negative faces of education. But if we look at peace and we draw on the work of Professor Johan Galtung, um, who is a professor in peace and conflict studies, he speaks around the idea of positive and negative peace. Now, negative peace, put simply, means the absence of direct forms of violence. Positive peace, on the other side, is then the more transformative aspect. So positive, means, positive peace looks into addressing the root causes of conflict. Now, if we then translate this to the role of education in a situation where um, conflict has happened and is maybe in, in a situation of transition, 
Um, then building schools back, just rebuilding school buildings and using textbooks that were already there during the conflict or before the conflict might um, kind of be more part of establishing a negative form of peace. So maybe violence has ended, um, yet it doesn't really transform the underlying root causes and triggers um, of conflict in the first place. So then education for peace building in the way that we've conceptualized it would actually address some of the negative aspects that uh, Ritesh referred to before. So issues of access, who gets access, who doesn't, how are resources um, distributed, issues of um, recognition of cultural diversity. Um, and finally also, are people being heard? So are different groups in society being represented in and through the education system and also in and through education materials. So if we um, look at education through that lens of kind of a transformative um, peace and positive peace, um, that would hopefully also provide some arguments to engage policymakers and engage international agencies um, yeah, in, in that kind of new maybe not so much new, but in that more sustainable way of looking at peace or the sustaining peace um, discourse that the UN is actually starting to speak of themselves at the moment as well. Would this, would this require that multiple actors would have to agree on the root causes of the conflict in the first place? Um, it, yes. Well, yes and no. I think, I think one, of the, one of the challenges uh, is exactly that question. What are those root causes of conflict and how do you get um, a group of different stakeholders to agree to what that might look like? And um, what's really interesting and kind of going back to your last question is that um, it's not, and, and maybe this is where peace building is, is tricky because there are two things about it. It's a long-term enterprise, it's a long horizon window, and it doesn't offer any immediate and quick policy solutions. Um, so, the, so the first part is that you can't approach this kind of enterprise from this problem-solving approach. You can't say, okay, we want peace, so we'll do X and we'll solve the problem, because actually it's a combination of X, Y, Z and, and probably 20 other things that are kind of working in, in a particular way uh, in that space. Um, but when it comes to then identifying the root causes of conflict, um, I think one of the key learnings that I think both the research and policy work that's been done over the last uh, 15 to 20 years in this space has found is that generic policy solutions don't work. So to give you a really concrete example, um, between 2007 and 2011, um, UNICEF, uh, through funding that was received from the government of the Netherlands, had a large um, education and emergencies and post-conflict transitions uh, program that they were running. Uh, across a number of countries. And what they discovered after running this program is that generic solutions don't work. And instead, that interventions need to be informed by high-quality conflict analyses that are 
sensitive to the local context uh, and that need to have broad stakeholder engagement. So there was a follow-up program that came about from that recommendation, again funded by the government of the Netherlands, um, and it was called the Peace Building Education and Advocacy Initiative. Now this was a remarkable departure from the way that peace building has really been approached in education programming, uh, I think, up to this time. And unfortunately that program has now been closed, but I think there are some really important lessons that have been learned. So identifying root causes of conflict was done in a participatory way. It had multiple stakeholders involved. Um, they involved groups of youth in some contexts. They involved, uh, they, they, they might have sampled in different parts of the country. They would have had consultation meetings. They would have had discussion. And in some countries, this conflict analysis process took two years. Uh, so it wasn't something that could be done quickly. But the end result was that the programming, the education programming that came out of that was very attuned to what those triggers were and the dynamics behind that. And, and, and so, yes, it's not easy to build consensus. It is possible. Uh, and there are some fantastic examples of um, how these conflict analyses were done, uh, as well as what they showed. And I think those resources are now available on the um, ECCN website that's hosted by USAID. This may be a stupid question, but what is a generic solution compared to a non-generic solution? Okay, I'll give you one that I've been looking at quite a lot and been quite critical of, school-based management. Now, this is a reform that uh, we've seen travel the globe. Um, this idea that communities should be managing their schools and because it can improve accountability and, and efficiency and so on. Now, um, some of the work that, that Meek and I have actually undertaken in Aceh um, would suggest that actually school-based management is just reproducing or exacerbating political, economic, um, cultural divisions at the community level. And the mechanisms of support are such that it's geared towards um, not having communities considered what is the consequence of our decision on others, but what is the consequence of our decision on ourselves. So in other words, that, that shifting of the neoliberal discourse which stands behind school-based management is quite dangerous in the space of um, conflict-affected context where there are grievances not just between citizens and the state, but often between citizens and each other. And if we're shifting that to the level of the local, um, that can actually be quite dangerous. So, so that's just one example. And, and that would be a generic solution. So after um, states or school systems do these conflict analyses, um, these in-depth analyses that can take up to two years, what sort of non-generic solutions are then like emerge out of that process? Yeah. Um, so, so I guess one, one of the, so, so let's go back to the school-based management example. Now, I'm not saying that you can't do school-based management because there is actually literature that says that you can use school-based management as well for supporting and strengthening um, venues for discussion, participation, deepening democratic practice, and so on. But it's how, how school-based management reforms are structured. Um, so again, going back to the example of Aceh, um, what we saw is that in the very early period after the end of Aceh's conflict, 
Um, there were donors who were thinking about how do you structure school-based management to be aware to those conflict dynamics. So what it did is that it set up mechanisms within the process, such as who's represented on these um, community um, councils, um, who has a voice, how are decisions made, how is it ensured that these things are transparent, how is it that um, everyone feels that their interest and, and concerns are being heard. How is it that resources are being allocated equitably uh, within these kind of local political bodies and, and at the school level? These factors were explicit in the design. And this is very different to, say, a generic school-based management reform which says, okay, we just give every school a grant and we say, you use it, you elect it, uh, you elect your 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 council and and you know here are the parameters, but there's nothing around the conflict sensitivity element of it uh, that's embedded within those reforms. Um, and I think that's that's the kind of difference that we would be talking about. And so, what sort of success can be found when when those sort of solutions are implemented? Like, is peace being created and built and is it sustainable or you know is there a level of success that we've seen in some approaches to education in post-conflict societies um again if we go to the unicef um peace building education and advocacy program i think there were um the beginnings of evidence of success in a number of the initiatives that were um that were supported through that initiative um, many of those uh, stories of, of different types of program model, models and, and approaches uh, is embedded within a um, final program report that both Mika and myself were involved in um, drafting for UNICEF. Um, in terms of has peace been created, can we say that with certainty within a four-year program? Probably not. Um, and I think that was one of the challenges and remains one of the challenges with this enterprise and, and is one of the frustrations I think that we face within this, this um, area of work is that um, the way that kind of funding mechanisms and structures are set up, it's, it's very difficult to say that you can show we now have absolute peace in four years or five years. What we're talking about is 15, 20 year um, time horizons, and this is something that's actually even been acknowledged by the U, um, former UN Secretary General in a in a report that um, he produced with the launching of the Sustainable Development Goals, where he actually said that with this shift to the Sustainable Development Goals um, and this increased focus on um, peace within them, um, we need to be looking at longer time horizons. And he himself said that we're talking about 15 to 20 year time frames before we can actually say um, that these things are, are leading to kind of sustainable peace of the type that we would be advocating for. So this is also just to follow up on that, uh, that point. And actually, as a background to this, um, the work that UNICEF has been doing as Ritesh mentioned, the Peace Building Education and Advocacy Program um, finished. And this was also due to the fact that the Dutch government had been supporting UNICEF first with between 2007 and 2011 with the former program. And then the Peace Building Education Program was kind of a follow-up phase. So that was, in a way, a somewhat longer-term commitment. But because of political shifts in uh, the Netherlands, the country where I, I come from, you see that that funding has stopped. Political priorities change. And that is really um, 
quite problematic. It doesn't mean that one country should always um, fund and keep on funding such initiatives, but it does mean that when there are no long-term commitments, sustainable peace building will be very hard to work on and also to measure. Um, so it's quite interesting to see that, as Ritesh mentions, within the UN there is now this acknowledgement and consideration that um, for sustainable peace to be built, there needs to be much more long-term commitment in terms of programmatic interventions, in terms of education reform processes, because um, as we know from the literature as well, this is also not something that happens overnight. And likewise, building peace is also something that does take um, decades. Um, and similarly for the research in this area, this is also not something that can be done kind of in a very quick um, time frame. So it's quite, it's problematic and it's almost a, the kind of million dollar question, I guess, is are there success stories? And of course we can come up with kind of smaller success stories and case studies, but we always feel, and in the research, what we always try to do is to, um, to look at small scale case studies as for instance, the school-based management example from Aceh that Ritesh just referred to, but placing that within the broader structures at national level, but also in regional and, and geopolitical levels. And because you can't really see those two um, as separate from each other. So is, is this, um, these sort of issues and tensions that you've, you've brought up, um, part of the framework that you've developed to study these, um, you know, post-conflict settings and, and education, how education contributes to peace building or not? Is this part of the framework um, that you've developed? Yes, in a way, I think it is. Um, the, the framework that we recently published um, on, and that's actually been part of a longer journey um, and in collaboration between Ritesh and myself, but also with, with other colleagues um, around us, is that we came up with this kind of set of concepts and, and methodological approaches to do research on the role of education in processes of peace building. But it's also, it's not a, a blueprint. It's not a kind of one model that would be applicable to any type of research. So just as we established in our discussion so far that there can't be any generic um, policy interventions. Um, likewise, there can't be any generic research approaches either. Now, what we did feel was um, useful, at least for us, is to write about and, and discuss our kind of um, ontological and epistemological stances. So that's kind of um, we draw on ideas from critical realism and a version of critical realism that has been inspired by the work of uh, Roger Dale and Susan Robertson um, and a number of other scholars uh, in that realm. Um, and this allows us to look at um, reality, also seeing those things that can't be empirically observed. So looking at power structures, looking at mechanisms of inclusion and exclusion. Um, so looking at the unseen in a way, and in a way to trace back what mechanisms and what power structures are in place in a context like Aceh in Indonesia, um, what political histories, what histories of conflict, um, how are different 
um, religious perspectives being um, kind of dominated uh, within the context and how does all of that influence the way that an education system is functioning and the way that education actors can um, can function and can make choices. So we can see some of those mechanisms, but some of that is unseen. And this is where we feel a qualitative research approach helps us to uncover um, the beliefs, the narratives, the ideas, um, and the power um, positions that are all playing a role in, in what happens with education in uh, a conflict like Aceh, or sorry, in a post-war um, situation like Aceh. I wouldn't necessarily call it post-conflict, um, referring back to our former discussion where we said um, in a situation of positive peace, which um, could be related to post-conflict, all the root causes would be addressed, which is not necessarily the case in Aceh. So then if we want to uncover these root causes of conflict in a situation like Aceh, we, um, with the framework that we came up with, we um, draw on a number of other methodological inspirations. Um, one of them is the recent work on cultural political economy. So that looks at the cultural turn within political economy thinking and the work of Bob Jessup and Nailing Sum and some other colleagues at Lancaster University and again, the interpretation of cultural political economy thinking in the field of education by uh, Susan Robertson and Roger Dale. And we feel that this cultural political economy um, lens allows us to look at the different um, aspects of these root causes of conflict that are underlying um, how conflict erupted in the first place and then also to look at what role does education play both in a positive um, and in a negative way in relation to those conflicts. It makes me um, wonder about would this approach um, using the cultural turn in political economy thinking and critical realism when we're thinking about peace building, would these sort of approaches work in non-developing countries? I mean, a lot of the examples that we've talked about so far are where development agencies are working. Um, so I, I just wonder, is this also something that could be considered um, in the United States or the United Kingdom or Australia or New Zealand or, or in Europe? Like, are, is this, are these other areas that could experience conflict? and be considered post-conflict? I think that's a great question, and actually a really important question, because, you know, we, we throw around the term conflict, uh, or conflict-affected, or post-conflict, um, as almost it's, it's this agreed-on truth about what that term means. And I think that the, the kind of heart of cultural political economy approach is actually saying asking us to think back and say, what are the tensions that sit behind this label? Um, what are the kind of cultural, political, economic debates and tensions that are actually causing countries or regions to be labeled as conflict-affected or not? And what's interesting is that um, while there's been a lot of discussion and debate around the term fragile state in recent years, 
Um, and in fact, um, one of our colleagues, Stephanie Bankston, has done a, um, a fantastic job of talking and critiquing that label and saying how it can actually lead to dangerous forms of stereotyping um, of, you know, a country is fragile or it's not. But we need to keep in mind that these terms are employed for particular strategic, political, economic, cultural interest. And, and there are kind of imperialistic uh, ideologies in play here. It's, it's, it's sometimes a guise for interventionism. On the other hand, if we're talking about a, a context like the United States or the United Kingdom or Western Europe, I think our societies would be actually very low to have that label placed on it because it because we've so embedded in us this notion that it has a particular image to it. Um, but yet we know that social conflict is around us, um, whether it's armed conflict, which is, I think, where the consensus does lie on whether a, a, a state is labeled as conflict affected or not. Um, that's where it, you, you do start to differentiate. Now, I mean, Will, just to kind of, I think, highlight a really interesting um, story related to this is the fact that, you know, we, we, again, use the term developing, developed, or whatever, and if we come back to the notion of conflict affected or not, well, there's actually no agreed-on definition. And in fact, there was a, in the 2011 Global Monitoring Report, which talked about the hitting crisis of armed conflict, there's a whole discussion on the, the, the kind of contestations around that label. And, you know, agencies like the World Bank, Save the Children, UNESCO, OECD, they all have different lists of what countries are, are, are called conflict-affected or not. Um, and I think that question of what country should be on that list, what country shouldn't be, is an important one that we should continue to ask. And I think a critical cultural political economy approach allows us to say, how is it that this notion of truth, that these things are, these countries are conflict affected or not, how has that come? And it allows us to actually unseat those truths. And I think in this particular time and age that we're living in politically, we should be asking those questions globally about all sorts of matters. So, so yes, I think it's, it's an important question to ask. And I, I, I guess one other thing, and, and this is just a, a really important and clear example of this. Now, um, there is now a campaign globally to kind of monitor attacks on education. And um, which, is, which Meek and I, I think, is actually a really important uh, focus and priority. Uh, and looking at attacks on schools, attacks on students, attacks on education uh, personnel. And this is being led um, by the Global um, Coalition for the Protection of Education Under Attack. Now, they put out a map that shows all countries where there have been attacks on education. And they say attacks on education is any intentional threat or use of force carried out for political, military, ideological, sectarian, ethnic, religious, or criminal reasons against students, educators, and education institutions. Now, I find it quite curious that the United States is not on that, despite the fact that we know that there have been several school shootings in the United States over the last 10 years, and according to that definition, the United States should be on that list. Now, why isn't it? Well, who funds GCPEA? It's mainly U.S.-based funders. So, so, there, so again, this is where that cultural uh, uh, political economy approach is allowing us to also unsettle um, some broader, I guess, hegemonic uh, narratives or truths about what is 
the no- nature of conflict or post-conflict settings and, and maybe unsettle that, that kind of um, definition of it. And, and I'd add that you are also unsettling the definition of, of education. A lot of people assume that education is always uh, something positive. But obviously, when you're talking about power interests and those who are designing curriculum, um, it is not always so positive. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, and we know there is a long literature on education more broadly that talks about the political um, dimensions of education. And I think we're very much drawing on that body of critical scholarship and critical theory when we're looking at education in that light. Yeah, and I feel this is also where, um, if I come back to the, the framework that, we, um, that we've been working with and we've been developing together and, and also in collaboration with, um, with other colleagues, also more recently for um, the Research Consortium on Education and Peacebuilding, which was um, a partnership between UNICEF and UNICEF's Peacebuilding Education and Advocacy Program, um, the University of Amsterdam, University of Sussex and University of Ulster. And we, um, together with Professor Alan Smith and Professor Mario Novelli and a number of colleagues, um, including Ritesh and myself, we developed what we've called a, a four R's framework. And this is basically bringing in a social justice perspective into looking at the role of education for peace building. Now, Ritesh and I already in, in the conversation so far, we've mentioned a few times um, these three kind of different aspects of um, the way that resources are being redistributed, which would be in the terms of Nancy Fraser, who is one of the leading um, theorists from kind of a critical gender perspective on social justice, this would be the first R um, of redistribution, looking at social justice through that kind of economic lens of how resources are being distributed and how that works within the education system. Um, we've also provided some examples of the second R, which is around issues of cultural recognition. And um, so this is being played out in the way that language of instruction is being organized in education systems, um, but also the ways in which um, certain um, stories or certain cultural traditions are being represented in textbooks or in the way that um, teachers um, are addressing some of the exams in the classrooms or absences um, within that uh, within that realm of, of cultural diversity. The third R is then around representation and so these three first R's redistribution, recognition, and representation all draw on the work of Nancy Fraser. Representation deals with um, issues of political voice, of um, both students and teachers having a say in what happens um, within education reform processes, but also at the local school level. Um, and this again relates to Ritesh's example about the school-based management um, reforms. And then for um, the Education uh, and Peacebuilding Research Consortium that I just referred to, we added a fourth R to complete this, um, this four R's um, model or analytical framework. And the fourth R is um, specific to situations where there's been um, violent conflict and um, kind of a long, longer term conflict. And this is the issue of reconciliation. 
So reconciliation has, of course, different meanings in different contexts. We studied issues of reconciliation in South Africa, in Uganda, in Pakistan, and in Myanmar um, for the research consortium. And obviously, in a situation like South Africa, where there's been an extensive process of truth and reconciliation through the committee um, that was established there, reconciliation has a whole different meaning and has also been um, already adopted within teaching strategies and, and the teaching of history in a very different way than we would see at the moment in a context like Myanmar, where reconciliation for at least parts of um, communities within the country isn't really an issue to talk about yet because um, conflict is still ongoing in parts of, um, of that context. So those four R's, redistribution, recognition, representation and reconciliation for us are a way um, to use a social justice lens to look at root causes of conflict and at the same time we can also approach those um, from a more positive angle and looking at solutions or ways that education could start to address those root causes um, and root injustices that are underlying um, conflict in the first place. Well, Mika and Ritesh, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was wonderful to talk today. Thanks, Will. Thank you as well for organizing this. Mika Lopez Cardozo is an assistant professor in International Development Studies at the Institute of Social Science Research at the University of Amsterdam. Ritesh Shah is a senior lecturer of comparative and international education at the University of Auckland. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang and Yuval Devere. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. If you've liked what you've heard, please do rate us on iTunes. It helps. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.